Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, A Desert Experience, with a message entitled, Loving Others, Respecting Your Neighbor. So let's turn to Exodus 20, 15 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Western world speaks much about human rights and, of course, no thinking person or caring person should ever advocate against human rights. But it's not just a Western standard. There's a document in our world called the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, and it states, among other things, that everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security. It states that no human being should be held in slavery, that no one should be subjected to torture that everyone has the right to due process by law before a competent tribunal, that no one should be subject to arbitrary arrest. People have a right to be free from persecution and so forth. But these words will always just remain on paper if there is not inculcated in persons the respect for each other. And truth be told, there can be no individual respect for another without a moral foundation for that respect. And that moral foundation is found in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That is, if every man and woman, every boy and girl is in the image of God, then the value of each individual is established. But that's only the moral foundation for respecting one's neighbor. The moral foundation is necessary, but like a house... It's not enough to simply have a foundation. You have to build on the structure. The Ten Commandments built on the foundation. So today we're going to be examining commands 8, 9, and 10. These last three commands that God gave Israel really do set the stage for what it means to respect your neighbor. They tell us what rights your neighbor has, and they tell us that those rights must not be violated. So let's look at the eighth command. It's found in Exodus 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. Essentially, that command assumes private ownership of things. There are things that belong to your neighbor that don't belong to you. You may not have access to them. They do not belong to you. Stealing or theft, it's a monstrous problem today. The U.S. reports you know, that $35 million is stolen from retailers by shoplifters every single day. One person out of 11 are shoplifters at some time in their lives. That's incredible. The Retail Council of Canada reports that not only is shoplifting a problem, but so is employee theft. In fact, employee theft might just be a bigger problem than shoplifting. See, every year, employee theft costs Canadian businesses over $1.5 billion. The costs are staggering resulting in numerous bankruptcies of businesses and also about a 2% rise in the cost of consumer goods. Yeah, you're paying 2% more than you should on everything because employees are stealing from their employers. But since employers are forced to pass those things on to the consumer, you're paying a 2% employee theft tax every time you buy. Security firms regularly talk about the 10-10-80 rule. 10% of employees will never steal under any circumstances. 10% will rob you blind. And 80%, the vast majority, will steal if the conditions are right, or the time is right, or they're depressed, or, you know, an item seems large or small or well. I mean, you name the reason. 
That, of course, means that in Canada today, about on average, 90% of the population is willing to steal. And what's especially interesting is that most of those people see absolutely nothing wrong with it. They have no ethical dilemma at all. See, let's see what the Bible says about private property and ownership. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's because God created all things, the psalmist would later say in Psalm 24 verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. In other words, since God created and since he sustains the creation, he maintains the ownership rights of this earth. Unlike all other systems of economics, in the Bible, God commands and maintains all things. God, not human beings, owns everything. But of course, that's not all the Bible says. After the creation of man and woman, God gives them specific commands. Genesis 1:28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Thus, the Bible makes it clear that we human beings are the stewards of that which God owns. That means that God has entrusted his property to us to care for and to provide for it in the way that he has determined. And what God wants of us is that we subdue the earth. Psalm 8, verse 6, you have given him dominion over the work of your hands. That's where we get the idea of stewardship. We don't own anything. God owns everything. But God entrusts his property be used by us, not as we see fit, but as God sees fit. Greed, trampling on the rights of the poor, using money to abuse power and oppress others, that is condemned. So is taking that which God has entrusted to someone else. So think about it. If you want to calculate the cost of theft, well, I've talked about, you know, shoplifting, employee theft. Now calculate the cost of failed businesses because of that, which is a staggering cost to the economy. Add that to auto theft and the insurance rates that follow. Add that to policing costs and security costs. Add the cost of identity theft. Well, it goes on and on. It's very likely that there would not be one single poor country on the face of the earth were it not for theft. And when God said, you shall not steal, he made the command so that we, the people of this earth, created in the image of God, would enjoy the wealth of his creation. We could be stewards subduing the earth and living for his glory. Theft is not the way to become rich. It's the way to remain poor. Theft affects others. We might say, they'll never miss it. But that, my friend, is a lie. The earth staggers against this crime against God. So let's move to the ninth command. Exodus 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So let's understand this command. 2,000 years ago, Pontius Pilate stood before Jesus and asked a searching question. What is truth? Indeed, that question sounds hauntingly contemporary. A professional athlete will stand before a congressional committee and testify that he'd never used banned substances. Presidents and prime ministers have denied and misled. Entire nations go to war by subverting truth. The intelligence industry of most nations wouldn't be able to exist without constant lies. Whether it's popes or televangelists, We've become so accustomed to religious and political leaders lying, we're numb. What is truth, asked Pilate? You know, is all life simply a matter of perspective? Is it just semantics? Is it just words? What is truth? And when it comes to the ninth command, to the most part, this command dealt with legal matters. 
You know, for instance, three chapters later, the book of Exodus explains this command. I'm reading Exodus 23, verses 1 to 2, and then verse 7. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with the wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many who do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. Or listen to similar words in Deuteronomy 19, 16, 21. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So you can see that the ninth command seems to be directed to what happens in a court of law. That's not just true in the Old Testament. It's actually true in every country on earth that wants to pursue justice. Courts are in a battle for the truth. They can't afford what the philosophy professor teaches, that truth is a matter of perspective, or about Pilate's jaded view of truth. They have to get the truth, and so they pass laws against at least four things. First, perjury. Second, slander or libel. Third, false accusation. And fourth, broken contracts. Now, from a study of Ephesians 4, 25 to 31, and I won't read it, but I want to give you six reasons why people lie. But as I do, let me define a lie. It's a deliberate attempt to deceive. If a person makes a mistake, you know, he thought he saw an accident on 4th Street rather than 5th, he's not lying, even though he's not telling the truth. See, a lie is any deliberate attempt to deceive someone. Do you hear me? It's deliberate and it's an attempt to deceive. So from Ephesians, six reasons why people deliberately deceive. The first, anger. You know that anger will often lead a person to lie. In our anger, we sin. Someone has made us angry and we want to tell someone else. And in so doing, we add a few details. We embellish, we stretch the truth, we lie. We need to let others know that our anger is justified. And so in order to convince others, we distort the truth. God never promised that this life would be easy, but he did promise that he would be there with us, guiding our footsteps along the way, in our working, deciding, moving, marrying and burying through grief or joy in family and community, God is present. He is active in all the seasons of life. But the truths of God's faithfulness can become muted by the noise of our present circumstances. That's why this month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering a free booklet called Restored, A Story of Lives Redeemed. It walks us through the book of Ruth and the seed of hope that one family's redemption story offers to us all. If you're in need of encouragement in your own story, this booklet is for you. To request your free copy today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I've said the first reason why people deliberately deceive is because of anger. The second reason is because they wish to harm someone. 
Proverbs 26 verse 28a says, the lying tongue hates its victims. Do you know that a lying tongue has victims? Oh yes, it does. Many are the reputations ruined. Many are the futures that are wrecked, the families that are destroyed, the jobs that are lost, all because of lies. One of the prime motivations for lying is hatred. Perhaps we want to hurt the person who has hurt us in the past. Perhaps we're jealous of someone's success and we want to damage them. All it takes is a well-timed word and harm begins to flow. We portray someone as a fool or an opportunist or as arrogant or as uncaring, as a sexual predator or as an evil person. And so we bring forward a charge. I mean, think about it. This is where the command starts to come together. We shall not kill. You shall not bear false witness. Some of us need to confess that the reason we lie is because we hate someone enough that we would murder them in our hearts. Now, we've talked about two reasons for lying, anger and the seek to harm. There are more reasons. The third reason for lying is gossip. You remember when we were children, we played a silly game. One person whispered a story to someone else, then we whispered that story to the person next to us, and it went around the circle, and by the time we got to the end, it didn't sound like it anymore. See, Proverbs 10:18 says, the one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. It's interesting that Proverbs puts together our hatred of others with gossip. Do you know what gossip is? Ephesians 4:29. let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Do you see that? Paul calls it corrupting talk. The word is often used of fruits and vegetables. It refers to spoiled or rotten fruit. We can say things that spoil and make rotten someone's reputation. You can damage them by what you say. So why do we lie? We're angry. We want to hurt. We love to gossip. Fourth, we lie because we're interested in self-defense. Let me ask you, how often have you lied because you've been caught in a sin? Sally took off a day yesterday. Was she really sick? Oh, oh, I'm caught. If I say yes, I'll be shown to be a sinner. So we say, yeah, I had a sore throat and I think it was catchy. How easy it was to say that. It went down as smooth as oil. And then Proverbs 12:19, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is for a moment. In other words, if you tell the truth, you don't have to change your story. But if you lie, oh my, you might just have to change it and you won't end up looking good. Number five, we lie because we love self-promotion. James 3, verse 5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Oh, we love to embellish our accomplishments and downplay our failures. That's lying. Six, we lie because it adds excitement to our lives. But does it really matter? Listen to what the scripture says. James 3, 5 to 6, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. So here's the good news. When we come to Christ through our new birth, we're given the Holy Spirit, and he is called, yeah, the Spirit of truth. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth. When we lie, we grieve him. The Holy Spirit is urging us to tell the truth, no matter how angry. No matter how much you'd like to hurt someone, no matter how juicy morsels that gossip would bring up, no matter how you want to defend yourself and make yourself look good, right now, if you know Christ, the Holy Spirit is whispering into your heart, tell the truth. 
And so you can't respect your fellow human being if you steal, and you can't do it if you bear false witness. Now the 10th command, Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. You know, on a popular level, to covet something is to yearn or desire or crave to possess something. And the key issue, at least for a great many people, is the issue of desire. If you know anything about Buddhism, Buddhism teaches that desire is the beginning of all suffering. Get rid of desire, says Buddhism, and you'll get rid of suffering. That's a fascinating perspective, but is it true? Well, on the one hand, we might argue that a great deal of desire does lead to suffering. I mean, you might want to think about what James says. James 4 verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Indeed, a great many human crimes are perpetrated against others because one person desires what the other has. Well, is that true of all desire? Well, let's talk about desire. You know, it's been said that a great many of the advancements that humanity has achieved has come about out of a desire to have something we don't presently have. You know, the capitalist system of economics is based on desire. The advertising industry both creates desire and then seeks to fulfill it. See, desire can be good or it can be evil. Jesus told his disciples on the evening of the Last Supper, I have earnestly desired, the Greek word could actually be translated as lusted, an overwhelming desire. I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, he said. And there, desire was good and godly and holy and pure. But the 10th commandment also teaches us that desire can be base and impure and unholy and an affront to God. And furthermore, desire is not just felt by individuals. Nations desire what another nation has, and that might lead to war. You see, it can lead to something positive, however, if you think about it. You know, if one nation invents a motor car, soon all nations will want one, and that can lead them to trade, to technological revolutions, to the advancements of other countries. Or if one nation invents ways of growing food that supplies an abundance, soon other nations want that technology for themselves. If a nation realizes a neighboring nation has a higher standard of living, they might also want that standard of living. Listen, all of this is fed by desire. And furthermore, it's fed by the desire to want what your neighbor has. I think it can be argued that there is a kind of desire to have what someone else has that has elevated the human race. But evil and wicked desire leads to adultery. It leads to theft. It leads to murder. It leads to the worship of idols. Indeed, many Bible teachers have pointed out that the 10th command is the application of the other nine. While the other nine can be viewed as being external, the 10th deals with the internal heart attitude. Look, I'm not saying that the first nine commandments are external only, but let's review them. Number one, you shall have no other God. That can also mean you shall not desire another God. Number two, don't make any physical representations of God. That must also mean don't even entertain a false view of God in your heart. Number three, don't misuse the sacred name. That must also mean don't treat the most holy thing in an ordinary way. That's about hard attitudes. Number four, observe the Sabbath. Rest and worship, for that's the way in which God wants you to live. And externally, you might simply think that's it, but it does reflect the desire of your heart. Number five, honor your father and mother. 
well, that's done by externally submitting to their authority when we're young and then continuing to honor them when we're older. It does require a thankful heart for their sacrifice in raising us as well as their obligation to raise us in the things of God. Number six, do not murder. That means, as Jesus taught, don't even hate someone in your heart. Number seven, don't commit adultery. I mean, compare the seventh command with the tenth command. Don't desire your neighbor's wife. That's what Jesus spoke of when he spoke of lusting after a woman in your heart, harboring a desire that's abhorrent to God and his rule of righteousness. Number eight, don't steal. I mean, compare that to the tenth command. You might desire your neighbor's house, his servant, his livestock which constitutes his business interests. That inner desire is evil. And now number nine, don't bear false witness. You see, you might do that because you desire his harm. The 10th commandment really does summarize the other nine. If you feel you've externally kept the 10 commandments, if you think you're faultless, if you think that you don't need a savior from your sins and your lawbreaking, if you've concluded you're not a lawbreaker at all, Then read the Ten Commandments again, because it exposes the deep recesses of evil human desire. Proverbs 27, verse 20. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. That is to say, just like the grave that's never satisfied with the number of dead, so also are the things we want. And it's the tendency towards dissatisfaction rather than thankfulness in God that leads to all offenses against God. The Ten Commandments teach us what is right. They teach us how to love God and how to love our neighbor. The bad news is that the Ten Commandments expose us as lawbreakers. The good news is that we need a savior and it just so happens to be that God has provided one. His name is Jesus. Thanks, John. Let me ask you, in a a general sense, what is the impact of coveting and how do we avoid comparison? Yeah. You know, it's such a good question, Ben, because, I mean, the impact is felt everywhere. I mean, we think it's just something that we do in our hearts. No one else sees it. But it drives the the direction of an entire life. Uh, There are people who are constantly dissatisfied. They can never come to a deep abiding gratefulness to God for his many mercies. So instead of gratefulness and worship and a life freely lived before God, they're incessant complainers and it breaks out constantly. And, uh, and because of this, of course, they are unable to enjoy the life that God has for them. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, A Desert Experience, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching you can trust. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-A-Gain's Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John, spiritual encouragement of Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. 
So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca, call us at 1-800-663-2425, and please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants.